I'm Anna Webb. Welcome to A Dog's Life. Hey, Mr. Binks. You know how lucky you are that no one ever looks at you and thinks that you're a scary dog. But some dogs really are discriminated against because of their breed or just because of the way they look. That's why we're about to jump on Zoom to talk to the RSPCA's dog welfare specialist, Dr. Sam Gaines, about the recent conversations in Parliament about breed-specific legislation and what the future holds. Gaines, welcome to A Dog's Life. Hi Anna, absolutely fantastic to join you. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Oh, don't be silly, it's a total pleasure. Now you're the dog welfare specialist at the RSPCA, which is obviously why you're on A Dog's Life. And it's funny, I've just been watching the latest BBC documentary that's gone live today and I've seen you on it. Tell us more about this. Yeah, so this is um, a new programme that's just gone on to iPlayer today, which is looking basically at lots of issues around puppy breeding and in particular on the back of the pandemic and the increased desire for people to actually acquire and own puppies. Um, And the RSPCA was asked to contribute to the documentary to talk um, about a number of different issues. Um, One which was featured actually in the film, which was basically trying to help people understand how best to buy puppies responsibly and actually to use an online tool that we developed with the Animal Welfare Foundation part of BVA um, many years ago called the Puppy Contract. So we were delighted to be able to talk about that because that gives people the best chance of getting a puppy that's had the best start to life and is very much around making sure welfare is first and foremost. Um, But we also had um, one of our animal centre managers, Anna White, featured as well. She's got a dog called Eaton that unfortunately had its ears cropped when he was a puppy. So she was also interviewed to talk about the impact that that mutilations had upon Eaton's behaviour. I know it's awful, this ear cropping, because... I mean, it it is illegal here. It's been illegal since about 1890 um, in the UK. But is it illegal at the moment in America, Sam? Is is this where this trend is coming over from across the pond? Well, there are still various places where ear cropping remains legal. So in some states within the US, also some parts of um, Eastern Europe. And I think this is is part of the problem that, that we're seeing is that Unfortunately, despite it being illegal in England and Wales and Scotland, what we're we're seeing, unfortunately, is dogs being imported from countries where, in some cases, it has been done legally, but in other cases, it hasn't. And these dogs are being bought into the country, we think, possibly um, because there's just a desire for this particular look. And it's, you know, we're seeing this very much... um, it's increased definitely over so like the, the past few years. Just as an example, the RSPCA on a, you know, gets complaints around air cropping to, into their cruelty line on a fairly sort of regular basis. But what we've actually seen over the last six years, a 621% increase in the number of reports. 
Um, what we're thinking is happening is it's images on social media. There's a number of high profile celebrities that have got these dogs and also an increase in the popularity of certain breeds like American Bullies and Dobermans, which that look of having cropped ears is typically associated with. Um, but it is hugely worrying because like you say, you know, it is an illegal practice, but it's also, and the, you know, the reason why it's legal is the fact that it is incredibly painful and it is wholly unnecessary. And so, you know, people are cropping dogs ears to fulfill this desire for a particular look. So whether that's a dog that looks more intimidating or more aggressive or trying to fulfill what's thought to be that breed norm, regardless of that, you know, you, there's a huge cost to the dog's welfare. So it obviously impacts upon their ability to signal and communicate how they're feeling. But sadly, what we also know is that the veterinary aftercare for some of the dogs that have been cropped is pretty much next to nothing. So we've had dogs recently that have come into our care that have not had any veterinary aftercare following having their ears cropped and this causes long-term problems for them. It's just heartbreaking, isn't it? I mean, I've got a couple of books, Women and Dogs and Men and Dogs, okay. And I do know in Men and Dogs, there are a few major celebrities like, you know, Elvis Presley, Humphrey Bogart. I'm just thinking off the top of my head. And I think... Bowie and Bolan, all with dogs with cropped ears. The Bowie and Bolan shot in this was taken, obviously, you know, a, a long time ago. Um, and there are two Harlequin Great Danes with cropped ears. Bogart had a boxer with cropped ears. Um, yeah, so in America, you know, it was this thing, you know, the Hollywood film stars and, and people had dogs with cropped ears. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, it sort of like lends itself to part of the problem as well, because what we're certainly seeing is as we are getting more people being vocal around ear cropping and calling out people that own these types of dogs, there are myths that almost then perpetuate the practice, you know, that it's almost like, you know, a dog having cropped ears is natural for them. It helps prevent ear infections. It, it can improve their hearing. We've even had someone claim that it helps avoid damage during dog fighting, you know, and obviously dog fighting is illegal in, in this country. So you know, it is hugely worrying. What I should say though, which is very, very encouraging is that the UK government has announced that they are going to introduce a ban on the import of crop dogs. And um, this is under their kept animals bill that was um, recently launched um, a, a few weeks ago. So that is really encouraging for everyone that's been campaigning incredibly hard on this. And um, it was very much a campaign that was spearheaded by Jordan Shelley and has been picked up by lots of other organisations that have been calling on the government to actually remove the, sp the smoke screen that unfortunately allows those that are acting illegally in this country to hide behind. Government is doing a lot at the moment for animal welfare, aren't they, Sam, under the you know action plan, the animal action plan that aims to set the UK, you know, um, as the, the nation of animal lovers, as the country in the whole world with the highest welfare standards for its animal population. And yes, it's doing great things and the ear cropping is, is, is extremely promising. But unfortunately, there was a discussion in Parliament just a couple of weeks ago, wasn't there, Sam, that the outcome of that was, well, I felt terribly deflated when I heard the outcome. Tell us what you know I'm talking about. Yeah, so there was um, a Westminster Hall debate uh, around a petition um, um, with respect to breed specific legislation, which had been 
running for um, a number of months had achieved over 100,000 signatures and, and we'd, uh, it was set up by an individual whose dog was affected by BSL. And it was very much in terms of, you know, yet again, asking people to look at the flaws behind breed-specific legislation. Um, unfortunately, there was only a small number of MPs that even actually attended the debate due to other matters that was happening within Parliament at that point. But I think, you know, for me and for the RSPCA, what was really, really disappointing and frustrating to hear was the government continuing to talk about data that is both incomplete and flawed, but to justify a breed specific approach to protecting public safety. So it's, you know, this again talking about that these four types of dogs that are banned under breed specific legislation. So Section one of the Dangerous Dogs Act, you know, it's the fact that they're saying that these dogs still pose a heightened risk and a greater risk than any other types of dog is hugely worrying for us because, you know, the data does not bear this out. Um, we did a, a big piece of work in 2016 to coincide with the 25th anniversary of BSL. And we looked ourselves at the data around dog bites. And in particular, trying to look at those breeds that are responsible for the most bites. We don't hold that data in this country. So, you know, we don't have a good accurate estimate of the number of dogs that we have in our population. We don't record the number of dogs that are involved in bites and we don't, we don't record all of the breeds of the dogs that are involved in bites. And without that information, you cannot work out which dogs are the most responsible for biting. So, you know, to continue saying that these four types of dog, and in particular the Pitbull Terrier type, because that's typically the dog that we see the most of, suggesting that these are, are more responsible and pose heightened risk is just hugely worrying. And picking up about what you said about the animal welfare um, plan that DEFRA launched, you know, they have said in that as well, that they will ensure that dangerous dogs legislation continues to provide effective public safety controls. You know, it just shows that they are unwavering in their belief that BSL is needed, but it, completely conflicts and, and is at odds of what you were saying about their desire to have high welfare standards and, you know, for DEFRA to basically take the rest of the world with them in terms of welfare standards. And in an age, Sam, where, you know, discrimination is really, you know, a dirty word, you know, it's not a good thing. We all know we mustn't judge and we mustn't discriminate, but this breed-specific legislation has now for nearly 30 years been discriminatory, really, um, on certain dogs, but not only on, you know, there are the four breeds. What is it? It's the Japanese Tozo, the Pitbull, the K is the Cana Corso on there? Pitbull Terrier, Japanese Tozo, Dogo Argentino, and the Filler Brasileiro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen a Brazilian, um, a Filo Brasileiro. I don't think, do they even exist in this country, Sam? But that's not really the point, is it? The point is that these dogs are seized from their owners they might just be walking along, minding their own business, dog and owner, and a police car might pull up and go, oi, that's a dangerous dog, because it meets, dogs might meet the measurements. It's not even done that, you know, you know that this is um, a pit bull terrier, because being a type, you know, a pit bull isn't actually a registered breed with the English Kennel Club. It is like a hybrid dog that obviously was bred to be the size it is and so on with, with measurements. So any breed, so a boxer crossed with a Labrador, 
their offspring may have the same measurements as a pit bull and therefore could be seized. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, that there's a number of different things that, that make BSL flawed in its approach. And I think, first of all, it is the fact that there is this belief that the four types of dogs that are prohibited under this legislation pose greater risk to public safety because they were traditionally bred and selected as fighting dogs. But, you know, through the research that we've done and what's been done right the way across the world, you know, there is no specific research that suggests that dogs that were selected for fighting are inherently aggressive, that they're unique in their bite style or their ability to cause serious damage. But you're also right in terms of like the, the next problem with it is that we're not even actually prohibiting purebred pit bull terriers, we're prohibiting a type of dog that actually is judged based on their appearance. So when someone's trying to make, you know, is making an assessment as to whether or not a dog is a prohibited type or not, they will have a standard that describes, for example, what a pit bull terrier type should look like. And they will then judge that dog against that standard. And there is an expectation that they will meet a certain number of characteristics. And if that dog looks sufficiently like that standard, then that means that they are a prohibited type. But as you say, you know, they don't, doesn't take into account genetics, DNA, parentage. And unfortunately, because of the way in which the law is applied, you do end up with legal purebreeds and crossbreeds that are identified as prohibited types. You know, so it, it's not just prohibiting the breed that they intended to prohibit. It is it you know, includes a huge number of dogs who, importantly, whose behaviour has never posed any risk to public safety. And that's also the flawed aspect. You know, these dogs aren't tested for their temperament if they are seized. They're just literally banged up, shall we say, in kennels that nobody knows where they are, which, of course, is quite inhumane. I know they're suddenly ripped away from their family, kept in conditions that's very lonely. And if government is, you know, putting forward that dogs are sentient beings, then these dogs must also be sentient. You can't just choose certain breeds or types to be sentient again because I feel that's so discriminatory and it costs taxpayers this doesn't it Sam as well yeah and this is you know certainly what we've raised previously um as, as part of our report which is called a dog's dinner that looked at various different aspects around BSL and you know as you would expect from our species perspective one of the things that we're hugely concerned about is the impact on these dogs' welfare. Um, and I think, you know, this, this is, a, is, is a huge problem because these are dogs that are seized, like you said, based on how they look, um, you know, and it can, depending upon the process, mean that some dogs will spend a significant period of time in kennels. Um, and it's, you know, it, 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 it really is incredibly sad because some dogs, are fortunate enough to be able to be returned to their owners. So there is an ability to be given an exemption to the prohibition, which means that an owner of that dog can actually keep their dog, but they've got to comply with really strict conditions. So for example, they have to have their dog muzzled and on a lead and out in a public place. They've got to have their dog in charge of a 16 year old. The dog's got to be neutered, microchipped. They need third, liable, um, third party liability insurance and a certificate from DEFRA. So, you know, those are dogs that can be legally kept if they're found to be a prohibited type. In the case of rehoming organisations, we are not allowed to rehome these types of dogs to members of the public. 
and that puts us in a really, really difficult situation. So in the five years since the 25th anniversary, so 2016, we've had to euthanize 310 prohibited types of dogs in order to comply with the legislation. Gosh. And that's incredibly difficult. It comes at a huge emotional cost and burden to the staff that look after these dogs day to day, form really strong bonds with them, but also the vets as well that are involved in the euthanasia because no vet wants to enter a profession and have to euthanize a dog that is otherwise healthy and super friendly, but has to be killed because of how they look. And it's our experience that invariably these dogs would go on and make really great family pets. It's very rare for us to have a dog that comes in of this type that actually does really pose a risk in terms of their behaviour. That's terrible in terms of the rehoming aspect. Such a shame for these dogs. I mean, what's what's going to happen ongoing, really, Sam? I mean, you, you must feel so disappointed as well, you know, just saying what you're saying, you know, euthanizing over 300 healthy, happy, lovely creatures, you know, and the thought that that's going to continue now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, we, we have made some headway, albeit, I guess, fairly limited in that, in 2016, the RSPCA did campaign for a parliamentary inquiry into BSL. And in particular, what we wanted was for the first time for there to be some real scrutiny around how effective BSL is at protecting public safety and the cost that you know results in terms of dog welfare. And that parliamentary inquiry did play, take place in 2018. So it was actually a committee, um, an EFRA select committee, which is responsible for scrutinising DEFRA and in particular the legislation that DEFRA is responsible for. And I think what was really encouraging about that is that it was pretty much consensus from everyone that gave evidence to that committee that the law just does not work. You know, it is completely flawed. Breed is not a reliable predictor of risk. So you, there's no point in just targeting certain types of breed. And you know, EFRA were very clear about this when they published their report that there does need to be you know, a, an independent review looking at the evidence that is suggesting that these four types of dogs that are prohibited are of greater risk compared to other types. Now, whether DEFRA is going to look into that, we don't know. What we know they have done is they have commissioned research with Middlesex University that's looking at factors around dog aggression, whether or not it's gonna look at specifically at type remains to be seen and you know we'll find out when the report is published later this year but you know I think we are in a place now where the weight of science against BSL is so so great that at some point we have to have a government and certainly a government that you know saying that they are evidence-led has to say yes we do commit to ending BSL and that's what we want we don't expect BSL to be repealed overnight, but we do want to see a commitment by government to actually repealing it so that we've actually got a much fairer legislative framework for tackling truly dangerous dogs so that we are protecting public safety, because obviously that is really, really important. But what we don't want is the huge cost that comes to dog welfare as a result of the current approach. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess education is part of this or even looking at dog licenses, but on a bigger scale so that just like, you know, with cars, you have the DVLA, all dog owners need to register their dogs with a central database. So that could help with, you know, the dog sorry it's prudence in the background here so, um sort of you know help solve the, the the growing dog theft epidemic to have a central database but also you know look at penalties a bit like you get for your driving you know and you have to if there is an incident in a park you know then you know you need to man up to this and you go to your course like you do your speed awareness course or whatever you know people take more real responsibility you know that that term responsible dog ownership I think it's been so overused that people don't really understand what it means. <laughs> no, absolutely. I think, you know, I think we're probably all very guilty of talking about responsible dog owners and irresponsible dog owners, but absolutely that there will be people that will be doing things that we would consider not to be responsible, but strongly feel that they are. But, you know, you're absolutely right in terms of that there are other approaches out there that could better protect public safety interventions like education is just one of them so you know we would absolutely love to see a much more coordinated standardized approach to education particularly for children because we know that they tend to be very vulnerable to dog bites given their inability both to understand dogs and to communicate with dogs so we really want to see absolutely everyone having access to you know good evidence-based educational material taking away the postcode lottery that surrounds it at the moment but what we also want to see as well is a complete reform and consolidation of the dog control legislation that currently exists. So there's a number of different laws that are aimed at tackling various different aspects of dog control. And we want to see this all being brought together under one single dog control act. But what importantly, what we want to see with this act is the ability to actually intervene at a much much earlier stage so that we have the ability to actually work with dog owners whose dogs may be just starting to display problematic behavior and without inter intervention could potentially escalate to cause problems so we want to see you know early intervention preventative measures underpinned by notices that help educate people but right through to some really severe penalties as well you know I think I think this is the thing that I would stress is that we do recognize that there are dogs out there who do pose risk to public safety and there are individuals that absolutely choose to exploit dogs for this reason as well. So there has to be the means to be able to tackle this through appropriate and proportionate penalties. But, you know, we don't we, we do have to understand that at the moment. Focusing on breeds is just completely the wrong approach and actually is really misleading. So, you know, you end up with people who think that the breeds at the moment and the types that are prohibited by law are the only dogs that are dangerous and every other type of dog is therefore safe. And, you know, I think everyone would agree when we talk about this, that any dog has the potential to display aggressive behavior and any dog can bite. And it's not just about a breed or the size or the, you know, how muscly they are or how powerful they are. We have to take that away to actually help people feel safer and understand how to interact safely. 
Oh, gosh, I couldn't agree more. You know, I think I read somewhere once that the breed that bites the most is a Yorkshire Terrier. I think one one study revealed that over the years, you know, just to kind of balance. I know if a Yorkie maybe bit you on the finger, you know, arguably strength of jaws and so on come into it. But another thing, you know, I, I don't like people saying, you know, is when they say, yeah, but you know, you know, when, when a bull breed locks its jaws, there's no opening its mouth. You know, John Bradshaw, Sam, who wrote um, In Defense of Dogs. Yes, it's my PhD supervisor. Oh, really? Oh, he's so lovely. And (laughs) and then he did um, In Defense of Cats as well. Really brilliant books. But In Defense of Dogs, he actually demystified this urban myth. And he said, you know, saying that certain breeds can lock their jaws and you can't open them is totally wrong. You know, they don't lock their jaws. They just have slightly stronger jaws. But Mm. this whole thing, they lock their jaws and you can't do anything about it. well, that's actually, you know, incorrect, just for the record. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I know, and it's all also about, isn't it, Sam, you know, which I know this documentary that you're on does look at choosing the right breed for your own experience and your lifestyle. Yeah, and although I think, you know, even that in itself can be a little bit flawed. So, you know, I do increasingly sort of feel that a real focus on certain breeds in itself can be a little bit problematic when it comes to choosing dogs, because I think that can raise people's expectations. You know, we're probably quite used to hearing certain characteristics associated with popular breeds. So just for an example, I'm a massive Labrador fan, um, always have been, and you know, regularly see people talking about Labradors as being the perfect family pet, loyal, friendly. And I think that on occasion raises people's expectations. Um, I'm, I've got a, a friend who I'm sure I won't, won't mind me saying, but she's just bought a Labrador um, and he doesn't retrieve. So, you know, I think that's a good illustration of the fact that within a breed, you get huge, huge individual variation. So people buying dogs with an expectation of how they're going to behave are going to be disappointed if they don't behave in the way has been labelled on the tin. So I think for me, it's very much about trying to get people to, yes, think about the breed, think about what that dog was traditionally selected for, but that by no means is going to determine how they're going to behave. It's a probability of how they're going to behave and thinking about individuals and getting to know personalities so, so much, for me anyway, is so much more important couldn't agree more you know in every every breed as you say every labrador there are individuals every dog is an individual but i think some breeds are generally speaking easier to train and i think you know it is about being honest with yourself really you know so you can have that relationship that you've seen on social media you've been enticed by these lovely pictures on social media of happy people with happy dogs and you're buying into that certainly in the last 18 months the I think what is it Sam three and a half million more dogs are living in the UK than there were before so that's an awful lot of people that have bought puppies and and they all want a great relationship a great outcome from their puppy but sadly you know it's not always possible because they haven't thought things through but often it's their lifestyle you know they people underestimate don't they how Mm. much work a dog is you know it's not just for a Sunday to go for a walk on a Sunday in a park it's every single day <laughs> yeah absolutely and I think that's the thing isn't it no it's so true that people do underestimate what it means to actually have a dog as part of their family and you know it's that they have 
needs and preferences and things that you know that they really value and I think people don't necessarily I don't think it's necessarily that they don't understand that but sometimes people don't even know that so you know there's really good research that comes out from the PDSA every year that looks at people's understanding of the Animal Welfare Act and five welfare needs that you know you have a duty of care to comply with as any owner but you know the the general um, knowledge of that is very very low and I think that's you know part of the problem where again we need this educational element within schools so that people have a better understanding from a young age as to what they what is expected of them to be able to bring a pet into their life and to ensure that that pet is happy and healthy because I think that's you know is absolutely fundamental and like you say without that preparedness and taking the time to work out what dog is right for your lifestyle your family circumstances it's at that stage where you know bringing in a dog can then, then end up causing quite a lot of stress, you know. And dogs perform some, you know, perform a lot. They've got a massive repertoire of, of natural behaviour, but some of that behaviour is at real odds of um, you know to, to human behaviour. And, and quite a few people can find things that dogs do really embarrassing, can't they? You've said it there, Sam. It's this thing. I think we think dogs are little people you know because dogs are so good at reading us you know dogs do so much for us they do make us smile every day they do apparently make us live longer sam if you if you're a dog owner people think yeah but the dog dug up my dug up my daisies and i'm like well yes you know dogs do like to dig you know and things like that or scavenging in your best friend's handbag and eat a lipstick or whatever you know and it's like but how could you do that some of these things you know and you hear some of the the reasons for people rehoming dogs their tail was too long or they didn't match the new decor of my flat or you know i couldn't you know walk him twice a day because i didn't have the time and that's a common one so all these things I think we all need a wake-up call at the moment for the sake of our dogs yeah absolutely and I think you know it's probably now more than ever it's sort of like the easiest time to get or or certainly it feels like the last couple of years it's been incredibly easy to get dogs I think other people might argue it's been quite different during the pandemic because obviously at one point we didn't seem to have enough dogs to meet the demand but I think you know actually in that situation what we didn't have is enough dogs that people wanted to meet that demand so we still had dogs sat in rescue we still had other breeds but people were after certain popular breeds um but you know I think it is far too easy for people to just go and get a dog you know I could literally right now go on to the internet I could find a dog that I want to buy and could probably have secured that dog tomorrow and then could be bringing them home in a few weeks and that's you know there's I know that I know people will turn around and say oh but that's you know what it's like having children no there's no one there that tells you about that but you know children there are some safeguards around children in so much as you know they go to nursery they go to school you've got you know teachers and, and other professions observing we don't have that with dogs, you know, because even if you'd say, well, the veterinary profession is there to observe, not every dog goes to the vet, some dogs only go there once a year. And so it's very, very easy for things to happen that are completely, you know, without anyone observing and seeing. Mm. And so, you know, I think we've said before, the RSPCA is a really strong advocate for bringing back dog licensing. Um, and I know there are people that really, are, you know, are, supportive and concerned about that but you know what what we're not calling for is a license 
as was introduced in the 80s, what we would like to see is a very, very different approach to licensing. And there's some really good examples. So Calgary in Canada has a bylaw, which is a responsible pet owner's bylaw. And anyone that has a cat or a dog has to have that animal licensed. And as a result of that, they then get subsidized access to things like food at certain super, um, certain big Swedish um, markets and things. So it's, you know, there's incentives for people to actually get to have their pets licensed. But what they also then gain from that as well is access to improved dog services. So all the money that comes in from this licensing scheme is ring fenced and then ploughed back into services that actually benefit dog owners and those that interact with them. So I love that. And I think we should do that. I think we've just got to be sort of, you know, very open-minded in, into what could potentially happen. And I think, you know, we've, we're in a situation now with dogs where there's just so many different issues and where funding is lacking. So, you know, if there is a means to be able to raise funds that are ring fenced and, and are a benefit to dog owners, then I think, you know, a lot of dog owners would buy into this. And certainly from polling that we've done in Wales, there is a good majority of dog owners that actually would be willing to uh, support a licensing scheme. So I, I don't think, you know, we should be certainly throwing that out at the moment. It's definitely something we should be exploring. Oh, no, I hope so. I mean, I would definitely buy into it. I mean, I remember the dog license from years ago, long, long, long before, you know, it was, you know, banned, well, not banned, but um, removed. And I suppose that's, you know, given people the feeling that it's their right to have a dog, whereas I always believe it's a privilege to bring a dog into your life. So mm. I think it's just that whole link with everything back to social media, one click society, throwaway society that's invading all aspects of our lives at the moment. But it shouldn't it shouldn't affect the dogs. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And I think, you know, and, and you know, it's, I guess in some ways, um, people having ready access to information on the internet can be a good thing. Um, you know, certainly in terms of that we're thinking about like pet advice and care advice, if it's coming from a, a trusted source, but yeah, that there are a lot of things that, like you say, that we see on the internet, particularly in social media, that is, you know, it is hugely worrying. And, and I'm certainly seeing things like, you know, people more, it feels like people more frequently asking um, Facebook, for example, and Facebook groups as to what's wrong with their dog. And, you know, it's that, we wouldn't have had that 10, 15 years ago, people would still be going to their vet. And I think, you know, that's, it feels like everyone's almost become an expert because they've had a dog and, and that is not good for dog welfare. Um, because, you know, our understanding is evolving all of the time and you know, it's, it's so informed by, you know, ongoing scientific studies that challenge a lot of what we used to think was just sort of like the norm for dogs and what we just did. And I think, you know, that that's the worrying thing that we, we have to be able to, you know, identify who the real experts are to make sure that we're getting the right information for our dogs. Otherwise, you know, it is going to come at a cost to their health and happiness. I couldn't agree more, Sam. I'm I'm so deflated about BSL. You know, I feel, well, I know Molly, my first bull terrier, did a lot. You know, she was such an ambassador as a bull breed on primetime daytime telly and everything. Yeah, I just um, hope that can change because bull breeds are, well, for me, just so fabulous. You know, they're so human. And to think that they don't have feelings oh makes me feel a bit bit angry <laughs> yeah and I think you know that's I think that certainly what we saw you know as a part of the EFRA committee that was you know basically looking at 
at the effectiveness of BSL was that where there were individual MPs that went and met these dogs, it was very, very clear to them that these are dogs who are beautiful in terms of appearance and in terms of their behaviour. And, you know, that I think that there was a term used that these dogs are collateral damage. And, you know, absolutely, this should not be the case. We, we really, really want to see, as I said at the beginning, you know, the, the government or UK government committing to ending BSL. But there are things they could be doing now as well. And I think certainly for the RSPCA, we want to have the ability to rehome dogs that are found to be of type. It, we just can't continue in a situation where we are euthanizing dogs just because of how they look. So we do hope that at some point we will see a change in legislation that allows this. But also as well, things around change of keepership. So we're in a situation now that if, for example, I um, had a pivoted type of dog that was allowed to be legally kept, I could only find a new keeper for that dog if I was pretty much dying or seriously ill. And, you know, this is this is despite the fact that my dog would have had to have proven that they don't pose a risk to public safety, have all these conditions around them to keep them, you know, protected from the public. But if something happened to me, you know, say, for example, I moved house, I could no longer keep my dog, I wouldn't be able to rehome my dog. And that mm. just seems so completely wrong. So there, there are things that absolutely the government could do to actually make this law fairer whilst we still you know if we still have to have section one for the foreseeable absolutely well i really hope some people in government might be listening i think we're going to send this to some people and spread the word sam and i really hope we can make a difference and i hope you'll come on again and talk you know about some positive changes that have been made on bsl sam yes no absolutely i, I would i would absolutely love to and i think you know, one of the things that I would sort of urge as well is just, you know, when we look at BSL as an approach for tackling public safety, if we look outside of the UK, what we see is that the trend is very much away from a breed specific approach. It is all about fostering good relationships between dogs and owners, encouraging them, I'm going to say the word responsible, but encouraging them to be responsible dog owners and to actually, you know, for people that enforce dog control legislation, they are seen to be people that are there to help support them. And that's absolutely where we want to get to. We, we want to be in this situation where we have enforcers that can actually help intervene at a much, much earlier stage and prevent incidents from happening. And ultimately, you know, for dogs to be judged on their behaviour and not to be judged on how they look. Exactly. Yeah. Deed, not breed. Yes. <laughs> oh, thanks, Sam. <laughs> and speak to you soon. Pleasure to be on. So thank you. So that's our show, Mr Binks. What did you think? Yes, if people knew just how many dogs are being destroyed because of their breed and the way they look, I think you're right, there'd be a public outcry. And yes, you're right again. It's time for Woof of the Week. People really must understand that you need to judge your dog by its deeds and not by the breeds. And I hope you all enjoyed it too. If you did, please follow A Dog's Life with Anna Webb on your favourite podcast app. Thanks again to Dr. Sam Gaines for all her expertise and being a wonderful guest. All the links 
Tissam and the RSPCA are in the show notes. Thanks also to my very patient producer, Mike Hansen, and to Pod People Productions for all their help. Follow them at Pod People UK. For more about me, I'm at Anna Webb Dogs, or visit my website, annaweb.co.uk. We'll be back in your feed next Sunday, so why don't you subscribe now so you'll never miss another show. Bye for now. Bye.